I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This podcast is part of the ACAST Creator Network. Hello and welcome to Cunning Cast with me, Tony Robinson. Last year, the iconic comedy show Blackadder turned 40. It's the show I made my name on, playing the turnip-brained Baldrick. And to mark the occasion, I made a TV show in which I tracked down the lost Blackadder pilot. The TV show is called Blackadder the Lost Pilot and it's available to watch on Sky, Virgin and Now. I did a lot of interviews for it with some of my favourite mates, all of whom gave me interviews which lasted about an hour and it being television they only used about three minutes. And today you are going to hear my unedited chat with David Mitchell, who's a comedy genius and a self-confessed Blackadder superfan. David has had a stellar career in British comedy. His big breakthrough was Peep Show with Robert Webb and Olivia Colman. And since then, he's worked on a plethora of panel shows, including Would I Lie to You, Mock the Week and QI. More recently, he starred as William Shakespeare in Upstart Crow, a historical comedy, sound familiar, devised by none other than Blackadder's co-writer, the great comedian Ben Elton. I was so lucky to be in Peep Show, but then Ben Elton wrote, essentially, as close a show to Blackadder as you could imagine happening in the 21st century for me to play Shakespeare in. I, I certainly do not deserve a lottery win after that. I am out of luck. Oh, and he's just written a book about England's kings and queens called Unruly. Anyway, Melissa, my producer, is here to chat about my interview with David. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Tony. Well... David. It's a brilliant, it's a brilliant interview. David is, he's turning quite quickly into a national treasure, isn't he? One national treasure to another, Tony. It is funny, though, the way his career has rocketed. Of course, he wasn't in Blackadder. Uh, He was a boy when Blackadder happened, and he talked delightfully about how, as a teenager, he knew all the various bits of Blackadder and could recite them. But we wanted someone in who was of a slightly different generation, who could view Blackadder through a different prism, 
not someone who was, as it were, emotionally invested in it, but another craftsman who could analyse it and tell us what he thought about it. And that's why we did the interview, although at the same time, I hardly knew him. I think I'd only ever met him twice, and even on those two occasions, there were other people around, so we didn't say much to each other. But I've always been a bit of a fanboy of his, and apparently he feels the same. And so we just sat down in a chair and talked about stuff not only that we'd never said to each other before, but we, we both agreed afterwards. It were things we hadn't really articulated much before. So we both found it enormous fun. You're putting your historian's hat on and you're really trying to find out something about the origins of British comedy. And in this case, it's Peep's show. There's absolutely amazing facts coming through and thoughts about how he got together with Robert Webb and their meeting Olivia Coleman. And it's sort of like history in the making. It's so fascinating, isn't it? Also, it's intriguing to know who's worked with who. And virtually all of us have worked with the others at some time. And to see how that meshes, I think a lot of people will find very fascinating. A comedy family tree, the mind boggles. I mean, I think they're also of this generation, certainly your Blackadder generation and maybe David's, there's also this meeting at university. Sometimes it's Oxbridge in the old days, you know, the comedy circuit, the Footlights Review. You know, a lot of comedic relationships are born from that. Yes, that's true. I don't think it's quite so true now, although it does happen to some extent. Uh, but to hear how that worked, I find interesting because I wasn't part of that coterie. And do tell us, so this interview, just to remind our listeners, was recorded for television. It was for your TV show, The Lost Pilot. You can, as you've told us, watch it on Sky Virgin and now, right now. It's really worth watching. Tell us where, I wasn't there. <laughs> I'm very sad that I wasn't. But tell us where you met David and, uh, yeah, paint, paint a picture for us. He just came in the room and it was David Mitchell. We were at Television Centre. We tried to do a lot of our interviews at Tele Centre just because that's where the original Blackadders were shot. It's totally different now. It all looks very posh and glam. And you can't recognise the room that you're sitting in as anything to do with the place that you were in 40 years ago. But there's something particularly about the exterior that has the the same texture, the same feeling about it. And I don't know what I was doing. I just fiddling around in the room and I suddenly turned around and there was this guy who I respect so much and had hardly ever seen in my life before. It was a bit like the cowboy coming into town. Oh, that's so sweet. It's one fan to another. I, I love that. What a, what a thoughtful, fantastic image. Let's hear from you and David that day. When you were a little boy, how did you watch television? Where would you sit? What would you eat? I think we, I'd watch it. We had one telly for m most of my childhood, and it would be in the living room. At some point, we got another TV that went in the kitchen, but that was sort of quite late on through my childhood. We had so one TV. I remember it as not having a remote control for much of the time, uh, which obviously was great for broadcasters because, you know... <laughs> You don't have to be so good if people have to get up to stop you. And uh, yes, it was, that would be the focus of every evening, would be being in that room until I was made to go to bed. Were you allowed to watch anything you wanted? I think so, but I was quite sort of suggestible. So I think my parents used the technique of saying, oh, I don't think that's a very nice thing, and that would genuinely put me off it. So it was mainly just nine o'clock bedtime is what I remember. But what were the children's programmes you remember? Rent-A-Ghost and 
I remember, I remember Blue Peter sort of always being on in a way that was slightly comforting, but also you'd rather it was Rent-A-Ghost. And I remember watching Play School much longer than I should have done and being nostalgic for when it wasn't too young for me. You know. You're a nostalgic 10-year-old. Oh, absolutely. So um, I realised something, some of the magic's gone, you know. But I remember the Box of Delights. Oh, yeah. As, that was, uh, and I've watched that as an adult. And, um, does it still work? Yeah, it does. The first episode is still, still haunting. The um, much vaunted special effects uh, haven't quite stood the test of time. <laughs> they, they just look like, you know, some video that someone's done a drawing on. But I remember, very fondly remember Knight Rider, which wasn't, I don't know if it was a children's programme. I can't no, imagine. I don't it. think so. Yeah. Watched that uh, religiously, and that I've also seen as an adult, and that really has not stood the test of time. That is drivel. What about uh, any of that uh, wacky Saturday morning television? I think I watched Swap Shop. I didn't watch Tiz Was. I think that was... Because it was on the other side? Yeah, I don't know. I wasn't really... A, a, it was something, when I was a student, I realised I would have been c cooler if I'd watched Tiz Was, but I, did, I didn't. I watched Swap Shop. And, and I think but what I mainly remember about television is, is if it was on, things were going well for you. That was the aim was to have the television on. And there were some things that were obviously, you know, I, you know, they, I remember Saturday nights, they'd, they'd sometimes they'd put a circus on in the summer and that really wasn't great television. But nevertheless, it was You'd better watch... than not watching television. I, I was exactly the same. I, I would just, whatever was on, you would just absorb it. It yes. became part yeah, yeah. of you. Yeah. Is it any good, someone might say? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously there were times when you turn the television and it, there wasn't a, literally anything on. It was, a you know, the test card. Uh, and that obviously hugely elevates the value of television when it's not always available. Yeah. So a bit later on, you are, you are now a student. Yes. And you're watching comedy, presumably. Yeah. Was it hip comedy that you were watching, first of all, or would you watch the old favourites? I was... I was always, I've, I feel my whole life I've caught up on things a bit late. So, but I think when I was a student, this would have been the 90s, I was aware of two shows I was aware of coming through in the 90s would be probably Father Ted and The Day to Day. Those are sort of the, the things I was most aware of then. But yeah. surely you must have been watching and laughing at other things prior to that, because in a way they both oh, gosh, yes. deconstruct the form, don't oh, they? They're oh, yes, both very yeah. edgy. No, totally. And I think sort of growing, the comedy I was watching as a child moving into teenager would be, well, obviously Blackadder, but Monty Python, but also the two Ronnies and Yes Minister and fair amount of uh, Only Fools and Horses, but not r religiously. Uh, but then there's, there's too much of it. Like, you can't, you know, the, it lowers the value. You're not allowed to say there's too much Only Fools and Horses. <laughs> you go to hell if you say Okay, that. so there isn't enough Only Fools and Horses. <laughs> you took the same road as, uh, as Rowan and Richard, and you, you, you went off to, was it Oxford or Cambridge? Cambridge, yeah. And were you a public school boy prior to that? Uh, yes. I, I'd like to say minor public school boy. It's it gives like, you more edge. Yeah. <laughs> Were you lucky to get in, or did you work really, really hard to get in? I think both. I think <laughs> I certainly felt I was, you know, I was self-identified as a SWAT at school, and I, you know, I cared about exams and worried and wanted to get into Oxford or Cambridge, and it was, you know, a big deal for me that I did. And then, then I got there, and I didn't want to do any more <laughs> academic work, and I entirely focused on plays and 
the sketches and that kind of thing. And what did you study? History. Yeah. So you you must have kept a, an affection for the subject. Didn't oh you? yes. No. I, and I, now that my job is uh, comedy, yeah. I'm much more into history. You know. <laughs> but when when I was there, the time when the in those days the good old local education authority was paying for me to go and study history, that's when I couldn't bear it. Most of the people from Oxford or Cambridge that I, I've talked to about the making of Blackadder sort of remember a moment when suddenly somebody said, oh, will you be in this society or <laughs> will you play this role? And suddenly your whole life changes. Yeah. Did you have a sort of road to Damascus moment like that? Well, I think I, I auditioned for the Footlights pantomime when I turned up and, and I think, and, I in, and in the second audition for that, I met Robert Webb and... That I remember that very clearly because I remember finding him immediately very funny. He was a year ahead of me, and so he was, even though he was in in the audition, he was in the show already. Uh, but I remember finding him very funny, and being, but also being slightly scandalised by the fact that he he had an earring. And and I and I, I remember sort of thinking, okay, now this is a place where n- not everyone is exactly like me, but they're funny in a in a in a way that's sort of different and having a sense of that's really exciting yeah. and be you know having and I, you know I think having worked with him for so long I sort of re- I think the key to why we work well together is that we seem different and are similar it's fun, funny though to, to me yeah. because like so often in your life you've played this rather serious very straight boy <laughs> scandalized by yeah. things which yeah. we just think of as quite yeah. ordinary and I've always assumed that sort of deep down you're Edgy, probably a heroin user. And, oh, yeah, sure. Heroin, yeah. <laughs> and, and that you were playing yeah. that. But in yeah. fact, that was who you were. It's just kind of that now yeah. looking back, you're aware of it. Yes, I think, I think there's... I've certainly... The most I can lay claim to is being aware of myself. But, I, but I'm not... I'm not I'm not something else, yeah. you know, mock, mocking. <laughs> it is me. I am Mark Corrigan, perhaps a little bit less of an arsehole. Oh, I'm glad to be. Yeah, I mean, that's, that. it's only me saying that, so, yeah. and I would say Maybe that, you're not I? that self-aware. Yeah. 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 So, okay, so you've got into the pantomime. What, yeah. are, you, what, what are we playing in the panto? I, I played Tom the Page Boy. A great part. Yeah, and it had, and he was, he was a sort of a nerd. That was, he was comedically nerdy, and so I, myself, you into the unknown. my self-aware way, I, I, I think I exaggerated my own tediousness to comic effect. Yeah, yeah. And, that, yeah. and then, and then, and, and then I was sort of in this group of. I did lots of plays as well, and but I was, it was just a lovely group of students, all who wanted to do as much acting and comedy as. Uh, and there was no, I believe there can be, in, you know, there's no division between people doing the sort of serious plays and the comedy. It was sort of one community of people who were obviously slightly bitchy about each other, but broadly all liked having fun in the same way and all were telling themselves maybe this could be a job. Could be. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, what serious shows were you in? I was in, I was in The Crucible. Uh, I played Reverend Paris in The Crucible. I don't think particularly well, but, you know, I managed not to get laughs, which I think was important. But was he slightly nerdy and full of self-doubt? Oh, I mean, he was f- full of self-loathing and sort of going along with the sort of uh, horrendous consensus that involved murdering women. Yes. So, again, I hope I'm, you know, <laughs> a bit nicer. But, yeah, that's sort of kind of, you know, I was in Much Ado About Nothing. I was in... Oh, I was in Death of a Salesman. 
Oh, were you? Yeah. Were you? Yeah, I you was, can't get away with much in that, can no, you? No, that was, yeah. Uh, that was, in fact, that was, I did that before the Footlights Panther. That was, that was, a, I think those are the main, most serious ones. Did it affect your academic life? Were you doing so much acting that everything else was ignored, or, or did you stay writing your essays? No, I was. Yes, I didn't write my essays at all. But that, but I, I managed not to get thrown out. Yeah. Uh, but I did the absolute minimum. But what, the, the, what sort of degree did you get at the end? I, I got a, a two-two. Oh, yeah. No, everyone would have thought you got at least a two-one, probably at first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, you've yeah. redeemed yourself with that two-two in our eyes. <laughs> oh no, I really did no work for a long time, and then desperately tried to get it together over the last few weeks before exams. Yeah. You know, that's, and it was, you know, I. I but I, it, that's the thing. It's, it, when you're I, looking back, I sort of thought I had so much time, I could have done s some work, done a lot of plays, and still got drunk quite often. And fitted it in, but I was t I was too useless a human at that point in my life. So, yeah. Would it have been round about that time that you first saw Blackadder? No, that would have been uh, I first saw Blackadder. Uh, it was in the l mid late eighties. I was in secondary school. I was about thirteen, and I think it was it was at the time the third series was starting to go out. And, and I remember somebody at school saying the first episode of the new series of Blackadder's on tonight. And, and I had heard of it, but, and then he said, oh, it's brilliant, you've got to see it. And I watched the third series and then the third, then the second, then the first, then the fourth, and then watched them and loads of times. I had them all, I videoed them all, because in those days, obviously, there were things were repeated quite often. I'm, they were the days. Yeah, and I managed to get them all on video. I think some of them, I've, I've connected up our VHS video recorder to a friend of mine's VHS video recorder via some cables that he'd managed to acquire at some electrical shop and actually copied his video of some of it. And we had very, very low, at a very low quality VHS and I watched it many, many times. Looking back on when you first saw it, Yeah. What was it about it that attracted you, do you think? It was, I think it was, I mean, it was, it was funny. I mean, that's the, it was, it was funny and it was, and it felt like it wasn't, it, I think it, it was a long time before I realised it was a sitcom because what I, I associated sitcoms with being things like To the Manor Born and, and I remember a thing with, which I watched several episodes of, about two doctors he had Nigel Havers in it, and he was a doctor. And Tony Britton. That's it. He was an NHS doctor, and Tony Britton was his father, a private doctor, and they both got divorced. I don't know That's what, a pretty good pitch, yeah, isn't it? I, was a, yeah. And I, and I remember watching that, but, but and, you know, it was the, the odd attempt at humour, but it wasn't in any way that funny. Yeah. And then suddenly, and then so Blackadder felt like it was much more in the you know, the uh, Monty Python universe of it was being funny every second it could. Like, it's only here to be as funny as possible yeah. and to take the piss out of things and undermine things and be rude and be nasty and be, you know, and, this, and, and, it, and that sort of relentless comedy felt like it's a totally different genre from t the TV comedy that, uh, that was largely on. Uh, which, where, the, you know, that didn't feel like, and I think for good reason, it didn't feel like as much effort had been put into making it funny. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. 
But getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm taking time out of this excellent chat to tell you how passionate I am about making these history shows for you. And I think it's pretty obvious from my voice most of the time. So if you are enjoying the series, please do leave us a rating or review. And most importantly, please, 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 please follow the series so you know when a new episode's dropped. This also helps to boost our place in the podcast charts. It is, as it were, some kind of, I'm searching for the words, cunning plan. And it ultimately means that we can make more and better episodes for you in the future. Thank you. Now we're well. It's so, interesting, yeah. actually, the wor- a word that you used there, which was, part of it was, to be nasty. Yeah. Um, you're right. The, the, even though a lot of people look at it with affection now, it was edgy, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was, it was edgy. It was, it, was, it was irreverent. I mean, fully irreverent. So what you have is the historical setting. So you're kind of saying, you know, everyone needs to be, you know, straightening their ties. This is the past and history and drama and all that. And then within that, the Mickey is relentlessly taken. And these people are, they talk in a modern way. They have modern, selfish, self-interested motivations. They're incompetent. They're idiots. And they're looking out for themselves. And that entirely is, is not the proper way either the you know, neither of the, doc- the doctors in the Doctor sitcom were that nasty or that full on. And certainly no one in a historical drama would, would fail to be sort of, on some level, paying respect to the august nature of the past. And so all it was incredibly things... refreshing. Yeah, know? yeah, except yeah. that all those things you've just described. Yeah. Is it too cruel of me to say that that was probably the culture of Oxford and Cambridge yeah. <laughs> in the <laughs> 70s and 80s? Well, it, well pro- yes, probably. It's probably but yes, it's the same... Same world, I suppose, isn't it? It's the, the, competitive, the, slightly yeah. bitter, but yeah. funny. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Did you recognise that it was part of a, a tradition going back to that was the week that was? And I, di- I don't think when I first saw it, I didn't. I think I, you know, because I was, despite my uh, behaviour at university, interested in history, I naturally pieced together the you know, my sense of the story of British comedy over the following years as I got more into comedy yeah. and worked out the connections. And obviously the, the number of people who'd come from Oxford and Cambridge was something I noted. And, and that was, as a SWAT, that was great news because those were places of academic respectability and also where the comedy was coming from. So you don't have to make a difficult choice. 
you know, you can say, I'm just going to go there, work hard and become a lawyer. But actually, no, that's the place where you can entirely piss away your days trying to write jokes. And so that was great. Do you think that there was a little part of you when you were 16 or 17 that was thinking that, I want to go to Oxford and Cambridge, I want to be very serious, but I can be in showbiz as well at the same time? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I definitely, I desperately wanted to be a comedian, but I don't think I would have said that openly until I was a student because that, you know, I, <laughs> on some level I knew my audience and I knew that wouldn't have gone down well. That was not what the people at school or my parents wanted to hear. Yeah. Because yeah. obviously anyone announcing they're going to go into show business, they're probably going to fail. And so if you love them or you care about them at all, what you need to do is to get them away from that idea. And I totally understand that, that the the statistical basis for the discouragement that I would have received if I'd announced as a 16-year-old that I wanted to become a comedian. Yes, you and I are both very lucky boys, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's... We should be looking behind us all the time yeah. to make sure <laughs> that fate isn't going to take it all away yeah. from us. Yeah, definitely. It's only it hasn't taken it away from Rowan. That was a very good link, did you know? Yeah, so I yeah, yeah. Um, Do you think you, you got how extraordinary he was from fairly early on? Yes, I think I think I think he is. There's it, yes, his, his performance was sort of magnetic and and being drawn. You you were just hanging on the next funny nasty thing he was going to say. Yeah, and that the sort of it was just sort of in, in, incredibly watchable and likable, even though it was nasty. And I think that's the you know the addictive cocktail of it. The fact that this is a villainous character who you love, and a, a lot of the, obviously the writing is key to that, but also is having a presence and a persona that is able to be that likeable while being that unpleasant. It is quite an extraordinary persona, isn't it? In yeah. a way, it's very unlike what most performers were doing at that time. To me, it almost goes back to the musical, Max Wall and clowns <laughs> and things like that, all this kind yeah. of wonderful business he does. There's a bit in Blackadder 3 when the prince is trying to persuade him to do something and he is he's basically saying no I won't and I remember him he's being bribed being offered more money an extra hundred pounds a month or whatever and I remember him standing there and going and looking at his fingernails as a as a, as a signal of I'm not interested yeah. just going like that and I remember particularly noticing and, and thinking almost in despair how the hell did he think to do that yeah. that's so funny it's a thing he's chosen to do with his hand and it totally conveys but it gets a, it gets a laugh like it's some words uh, and it was the, the the perfect gesture of uh, contemptuous nonchalance you can imagine what it was like in rehearsals with him because he would do four or five of those things a day, yeah. three of which wouldn't work, and he'd just go... <laughs> yeah. It's like he'd try to throw his hand yeah. away because the business wasn't good enough. Right. And then he'd yeah. do another two and we'd all go... Oh. Yeah. yeah, well, it was, it was such a small gesture, but I, but I remember it so clearly and, and genuinely I laughed at it. It genuinely made me unhappy because I thought, I want to do this, and I'd never have thought of that. <laughs> For me, it had echoes of Basil Fawlty, ah. and, I, and very different performers. Very, but that that, yeah. that same sort of angry, nasty, watchable man in the middle, trying to cover his own back. 
and, and absolutely pulling no punches, not in any way trying to uh, get, you know, to get the audience's sympathy and being all the more sympathetic for that. I felt that through line. I felt that, that influence of, of the John Cleese, you know, broken authority figure. Well, you're absolutely right. They, they, they wore 40 towers on their shoulders yeah. like um, John Bunyan's pack going through the valley of the shadow yeah. of death. No, that's slightly over-exaggerating, <laughs> but, but, you know, but you know what I mean. I, mean, I think they always refer to it. I mean, I know that you're a big fan of Blackadder. We, quite frankly, we wouldn't have invited you here today yeah. if you hadn't been. But yeah. do you think somewhere deep down in you, in, in the comedy that you do, it, it has been influenced by having watched Blackadder? Yes, I think so. I think what I, I mean, I think obviously you can't tell what you're influenced by, and you, but what I know is that the rhythms of the dialogue in Blackadder, as I watched it over and over again, there, and there would definitely have been a time I could have recited it, and I could have recited it as it were in the right rhythm. You know, the, the rhythms of the, the lines written to elicit a studio audience laugh, which is different from how you write lines in a single camera thing, and the, the delivery, the laugh, the next line, the, the theatrical timing, it, you know, it was incredibly beguiling. And, and that, yeah, that definitely was somewhere in my head when I first tried to write a sketch or a scene or whatever. It should be like, they should be to that tune. And if you haven't said anything that might elicit an audience laugh, in the last couple of lines, then you're wasting people's time. So yes, it must have influenced me. You're listening to Tony Robinson's Coming Cast with me, Tony Robinson, and today I'm interviewing Blackadder superfan, the comedian, David Mitchell. When you and Robert Webb left university, was the idea that you would kind of stick together and write sketches and perform them? Yes, yeah, yeah, and absolutely. We decided we were going to go for it and be a double act and do shows in Edinburgh and that sort of thing. And, and you know, we didn't know if that would work out or how to approach it. And we did our best writing letters to agents and that sort of thing. And But yeah, that was our plan for the... We would have had to have failed for a lot longer than we did before we'd have given up. How long did you fail for? Solid, total failure for a year, <laughs> partial failure for a second year, and then we started in the third year out of university, we started to make a living. Um, How, what happened? Who, who became interested in you? It, well, it was, we got an agent about, after about a year, and then we started to have cups of tea with people who genuinely had jobs. The key w work that, that started to pay the rent was we got commissioned to write on Armstrong and Miller's Channel 4 sketch show uh, by the producer Phil Clark, who we'd met at the BBC, where he was making a very, very cheap show called Comedy Nation. And he was, you know, he was trawling for, you know, every, anyone who's trying to do sketches at all come in. And we met him through that, and then he liked our stuff and got us into right when he was then producing a show where they were actually paying the writers a noticeable amount of money. Comedy Nation is, is a great title. As, yeah. a, as someone passionate in archaeology, it, it's, it's a dating title, you yeah. know precisely when that would have gone <laughs> yeah, out on yeah, the yeah. television. And it was, it was absolutely, loads of people were brought into that. And so, but, but at the same time, it was, it had no budget and it was therefore it was essentially the sort of thing that people would now just do on their phones. 
but before the, they had the phones. Yeah. Uh, there was no higher production values than that. You had to bring in your own props. And for a show that was to be broadcast on BBC Two. So it was, um, and as a result, you know, it had a lot of very good people in it, and yet was dreadful. It was really can you remember, not good. Can you remember who else was in it? I think, I'm pretty sure, pretty sure Peter Serafinovitz was in it. I'm pretty sure, certainly Ricky Gervais and, uh, and Stephen Merchant had some involvement with it. Well, I didn't meet them then, but I think, yeah. And we never met anyone else who was in it because you, oh, just, see, you would yeah. just go in and most of the f first sketches we did for it, we filmed in an office in Television Centre because Phil Clark had, had said to the people, why do you fancy taking a long lunch? So it might and, actually have been in this room. Yeah, yes, yeah. And it, it, was, um, it was so cheap. But, uh, but it was, you know, actually getting on television and, it would, they, <laughs> and one week they uh, it didn't... It, they didn't broadcast it because the room where the tape was was locked <laughs> and the person with the key was ill. And so we, just, we were all there, you know, it was something like, it was a s late at night on some day of the week and we were sitting up to watch the episode that might have our sketch in <laughs> and it just didn't come on and they put on something else. And it was, you know, so... After Armstrong and Miller, how yeah. long was it before uh, you two got your... First show? About a year. We did Armstrong Miller and then we were writing on the Jack Doherty show, which was a chat show on Channel 5. And then we got involved in a, a slightly higher budget than Comedy Nation sketch show for BBC Two called Bruiser. And that was like a group, and we did a pilot of that that I wasn't in, but Rob was. And then they commissioned a series of that. And that was on TV about three years later in the end. But that was the sort of focus of our lives was that. And that you know that was very exciting, but we went we totally sunk without trace. But that was properly shooting a sketch show, and was very exciting, and had the odd sketch in it that I still think was worth watching. So that's on TV about three and a half years after university, and then a year or two after that we was, was when we were shooting Peep Show. So that's our, that was our sort of trajectory. Tell me about Peep Show because it, it's one of those shows where you look at the people who are involved in it and they've all gone on to have stellar careers, or at least that's how it appears. Mm. Were you just kind of cast or were you always going to do it from the very beginning? Sam Bain and Jesse Armstrong, who wrote it, we had met on a BBC team writing project that where the, where, I mean, it was ridiculous, where they'd commissioned one script and then the, the money was to be shared between eight people who would team write it. And, and we absolutely produced a script that was less than the sum of its parts. But we'd met them on that and got on. And so we then, <laughs> it's so, it's so, there's so much tortuous development and failure and that, you know, it's, we then wrote a thing for the BBC just where they commissioned two scripts and we co-wrote them with them and then that wasn't commissioned and then they pitched to Channel 4 this idea of a show where you're looking through people's eyes and then they asked they asked if we wanted to be those people because they had no desire to perform themselves and I remember the first meeting with the guy that produced that Andrew O'Connor who was a who'd been a magician and an impressionist and on the screen person himself a decade earlier and it just felt like the least likely of all of our various plates spinning and then crashing seemed like the least likely to come to anything and then that you know and then that worked out how long had it been running before you thought 
blimey, actually, this is the one that's not going to come crashing down. When we got a second series of it, that was already <laughs> so much more successful than, than anything we'd done ever before. done. Yeah. We thought, well, whatever, this is, you know, to get a second series, that may, means the first series wasn't an irredeemable failure. Yeah. So this has been great. Uh, but they never, we were, we were never comfortable, as it were. They, did, they never said, oh, great, make this as long as you like. There was like the third series you know came they commissioned that slowly and grudgingly and then they nearly axed it after that and then they forced it you know and even when we were in the running for awards it was always a, a marginal recommission until we got to about series five and then I think we were a bit comfortable then for, for the rest of it. Was Olivia Coleman in it from the beginning? Yes she was in the because um, Rob and I knew her from university and uh, in fact w Peep Show was piloted, it was called POV then, it was piloted in two halves in a very, very, we had a very small amount of money from Channel 4 to make a sort of 12 minute taster. And I remember Jesse saying to me, to me and Rob, and do you think your friend from university would still be okay to come in and play the, the woman in the office? And that, you know, that was how the, and yeah, yeah, I think she's still free. I'll just check. And that was the, uh, the basic, that was how the deal was done. And, you know, none of us, you know, it was just literally, it was just a Saturday in an office and she was there uh, and shot her scene. And then obviously she was brilliant as we knew, we already knew she would be. And so when Channel 4 then commissioned a second 12 minutes, we had to finish the pilot six months later. Uh, in a flat which had done up its own kitchen with the location money <laughs> that we paid for the first half. So that continued, they had to shoot it all one way. Then when Channel 4 said, okay, we'll make a series of this, they, they quite rightly said, and can she definitely be in it? Okay, so you knew that Olivia was brilliant then. Mm. Did you have any hint that Jesse Armstrong was a bit special in, in those days, oh, more I, than just another writer, as it were. I, I think, yeah, there's, there's, I mean, both Sam and Jesse were immediately very, very funny people to be around. And that, that was the, the first, we just got on with them. They felt like they were on a comic wavelength that we were really attracted to. Yeah. And every script, they, everything they wrote when we were writing with them was always, you know, funny and we, we liked it. The first script, with the pilot script of POV, again, it was just immediately really good and funny and different and, and angsty in an attractive way. And I, and I think that's for all that we were worried about whether Peep Show would work because of the weird filming style and the fact that it's not just a normal programme like the other ones and were on some level slightly wishing we could be making it more normally. The scripts were just always a joy. And you could sort of see in... Sam and Jesse, a bit like what you were saying, about that, that, that the characters came from them. There was a, a side of themselves that they were reflecting in the, the script. So I, I think we felt very lucky to have met them and to be collaborating with them. But, but also just, they're just enjoying their company. And, so, and I think that's a huge attraction in comedy is you get to hang out with people who are funny and entertaining and you know and and good people to spend time with while they're moving all the lights can you see any of your experience in peep show in succession which those people <laughs> went on to create there are lines in 
succession that, that for, for, for me feel peep showish. But I'm obviously I'm looking for that. And yeah, I, yeah. You know, and I know you know. And Jesse had been fascinated by, the, you know, the basically the Murdochs for a long time, and had been thinking of different ways of developing something about that kind of world. Um, so I, you know, I sort of, I, you know, I can. I, I, I can feel his presence within it yeah, in a yeah. very strong way, and but I, and what I think is makes it so, uh, you know, one of, I, I imagine one of the reasons it's so entertaining and successful is that it's you, you've you've got the grandeur of a big drama about something big and important, and then within it all sorts of weird, twisted, small, contemptible peep show level human things and indeed black addery in that yeah. same way yeah, yeah. It, and it's just um it's just yes exactly it's just so it's uh, in a way yeah it's very very black addery in that black adder it takes say the elizabethan age yeah. we're supposed to you know <laughs> somehow english heritage has told us to be very serious about these people and their portraits and go no they were just twats yeah twats like people are now in Mad clothes and stupid buildings, and the 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 worst of them were the ones that believed their own hype. And yeah, that, you know, and that's absolutely in succession. And and it's I suppose that's the 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 Edmund Blackadder character is the one that sort of shines out because you, he, on some level he seems to realise the idiocy of it all, and that we're all that they're all just sort of stupid, worthless, self-serving people telling themselves that they're kings and lords and, and the like, and it's all nonsense. You, you've just illuminated something for me. People often say to me, if you did another Blackadder, where would it be set? Yeah. What I ought to be saying is, we don't need to because Brian Cox is already playing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, Boris Johnson. Indeed. I mean, you imagine yeah. the, absolutely the number, the chaotic number 10 of Boris Johnson. Absolutely. Going back to, to Succession, one of the things that strike me about it is that the music is kind of huge in it. Yeah. The music is, is, is like the frame around some great Renaissance painting, brilliantly written. And I think in a similar way, what Howard Goodall did for Blackadder is not dissimilar. As soon as you think of Blackadder, you hear the signature tune. It's a great piece of music, but it's also sort of amazing branding. And you, yes, you get drawn into the, the mood of, and I think that sets it up, doesn't it? The mood of the, the past, the sort of slightly delicate nature of here we are in the past, and then suddenly the jokes and the nastiness and the, and the characters are kind of smashing out of that, that sort of about the, the, the musical vase <laughs> that's been set up at the beginning. But it's also slightly overblown, isn't it? Yeah. It's... Serious, but my God, it's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's a reflection of how we are as a nation. Yeah. When you'd uh, done Peep Show, did you go back to writing sketches or did you shift to sitcoms? How did that, what were you looking towards as a writer at that time? Rob and I were doing, at the same time as Peep Show started, basically, we, would do, start, we got our Radio 4 sketch show started. So we were, through all the early years of Peep Show, or most of the years of Peep Show, either making a radio sketch show or then a BBC Two sketch show alongside it. And so, yeah, writing sketches was really our focus more than... Because apart from anything else, 
because Sam and Jesse wrote such great sitcom scripts for Peep Show, Rob and I were content to write sketches instead because we were slightly intimidated by that. <laughs> and yes, we've, we've had various goes at uh, writing a sitcom, but we, we've, um, I think, having, you know, we grew up with Blackadder and with Faulty Towers, and then we got to be in Peep Show, and, and it, none of that makes the idea of writing a sitcom seem easy. It, it, it has given me huge respect for it as, as I'd say, television's greatest genre, and, and the only genre that addresses the fact that in people's lives don't usually change. And that's the thing, well, everything else, films, novels, it's all about bloody change. I mean, changes in people's lives. And when you ask people what the main issue they're facing is, and it's not usually change, it's the fact that things stay the same, people live in ruts, and sitcom is the art form that addresses the rut. And it works so brilliantly on television. Anyway, for all of those reasons, we thought, well, we'll stick to sketches. You go in, tell a few jokes, and, and get out before it's boring, because we're intimidated by all this. And when people say that uh, change is central to their lives, they usually mean they're being made redundant, yeah. and they're still going to say, <laughs> stay in exactly the same rut, yes. but without a job. Yeah, and obviously there are changes, obviously, in people's lives, but that, that, those changes aren't all, always a good story. Finding something that, that addresses and... In a, in a way that, you know, and there's the thing about, uh, you know, about the great sitcoms and, and about, uh, you know, Blackadder is so strong in this that it's, it's all so, it, it, things it addresses are, are, are disappointment and people letting themselves down and not elevating themselves out of the, the rut they're in or out of the, the failings they've been guilty of in the past. And those are really difficult, nasty, unhappy things about humanity and to make entertainment out of that is magical i suppose that's what my my catchphrase is all about isn't it yeah. the moment i say i have a cunning plan <laughs> you know that only disaster lies yeah. ahead yeah. the world will not change because yeah. of that plan if anything it'll be slightly worse yeah and well there's that, that little moment of aspiration of hope and, and you're sort of looking down on it and knowing it's doomed. Yeah. And, but at the same time, it makes all of the failed cunning plans in the lives of all of the people watching it easier to bear. Hi, this is Tony Robinson bringing you my cunning cast. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a rating or a review. And do take a look at our back catalogue. There's a growing selection of shows there to keep you company. Everything from Stonehenge to why pies were invented, why do our dogs love us so much, and the legend that is Miriam Margulies. I'm sure you're going to find something you like, so why not take a lucky tip? Go on, it won't hurt you. Did you know Ben Elton before Upstart Crow? No, no, I, I'd met, I briefly met him on a, like a, a previous reboot of, I think it was of Saturday Live. It was the, and we, we did, Rob and I did a sketch and we met him and it was, you know, nice to have met him, but I didn't know him then. And then I next met him for when I had a lunch with him and Gareth Edwards who produced Upstart Crow discussing whether I'd be interested and Ben's opening gambit was I think you need to shave your hair off and and then put a wig on there and and I, and I 
I immediately was put in the position where I had to immediately go, I'm, I'm not going to shave my hair off because it might well fall out anyway. So I'm going to keep it there while I've got it. We could put a bald cap on. But yes, yeah, so I got to know him then and it's been brilliant to get to know him. He's been, it, it's, it, the, uh, you know, growing up watching Blackadder, this I, is very I, interesting. It's yeah. the first time you've struggled to well, reply. No. Well, no, <laughs> and, it's, I, and it's all about yeah, Ben. Yeah, well, you know, genuinely. But it's, it's I, I, you know, I didn't know, having met Rob and Olivia Coleman, I didn't know I was going to meet someone else. I, I'd feel that. And Sam and Jesse, of course. I thought the time where I'm meeting the people who are going to be like important collaborators in my life is over. Yeah. And I never dreamt that, that, it, that I would feel that comically close to anyone else, let alone it would be Ben Elton, someone I sort of grew up admiring and watching the work of. So it's, it is kind of, it's a, it's a really happy thing for me to have met him and worked with him and to find him sort of even more creative and fun and impressive than I'd expected. He's, he's, a, he's a genius, I think. And, you know, I was so lucky to be in Peep Show, but then Ben Elton wrote essentially as, as, as close a show to Blackadder as you could imagine happening in the 21st century for me to play Shakespeare in. I mean, th that, that is, I, I certainly do not deserve a lottery win after that. I am out of luck because that, that was sort of brilliantly fortunate. And I obviously watching Blackadder, you sort of, that's what I want to do as a job. I want to be on sets like that with people laughing, with scripts full of gags. But I knew even then, well, unfortunately, this show isn't going to run until I'm old enough to be in it. And then Ben writes Upstart Crow, which is, as, you know, as close to the same genre as you can be. And with, you know, uh, his brilliant inventive jokes, and a, but a character I could play, which, you know. Yes, because in a way, Shakespeare is, is the antithesis of uh, Blackadder, isn't he? He doesn't have that grand malevolence. <laughs> no, he, he, he's a much, in many ways a much more, in Upstarker, a much more traditional sitcom character. He's, he's put upon and fearful and, and tentatively ambitious. And that's, you know, and to see that side of someone who, who is, is a, just presented to us as a, as a genius who could never have been assailed or bettered, to see that humanity within him, you know, is a, a great character insight and, and a great way of humanizing a genius. And, I, and for me, entirely plausible. I'm, you know, I imagine he will have felt like that. Why wouldn't he? We know the circumstances of his life. And, he, and it's, a, it's a weird thing, I always think, for, for Britain uh, as a culture that Shakespeare made a good amount of money. I, I genuinely think it's, it's, it's problematic for us because artistic geniuses are supposed to die in penury. Second to that, they're supposed to be hailed as mega heroes. But what Shakespeare did was turn a tidy profit. And it's so shopkeepery, you know. Uh, and he was probably the greatest genius that ever lived. But what he did is he made a good living out of it. And, and I think it's, that's so, that, you know, that, that fact alone uh, might be partly responsible for the rise of Thatcher. Were you besotted by Shakespeare before you came upon him again via Ben? I, I, no, I was, a, bit, I was a, a big admirer of Shakespeare, but I think like most people, I'd also sat through many Shakespearean productions that perhaps didn't give his work the best airing. And also I was like 
confronting the fact that it, it isn't all, it doesn't all last. You know, some bits of Shakespeare, it is impossible to make them as entertaining as they will have been then. And I, I struggle with that because you, you want, particularly if you're someone who writes stuff yourself, you want to think that a joke can last forever. Yeah. Well, Shakespeare couldn't make them last forever. Some of them last forever. <laughs> if he can't, we certainly can't. Exactly. Uh, and so it's in a way, when Shakespeare has dated, it's a, it's a, a sort of sad denial of the immortality of work. And it's the sad stuff that, that uh, stood the test of time better. So for all that, I you know, certainly wouldn't say, let's just put on a production of King John because I can't, can't imagine a more fun way to spend an evening. I was convinced of his genius and sort of, I suppose, slightly nationally proud of that. Mm. Uh, but in playing him, it made me feel weirdly close to, to this person who, who struggled and succeeded and had a sort of spark within, within him that was amazing. And he must have been admired at the time, but nobody would have got it about quite you know, what they had sure. in their hands. Um, but yeah, no, it's definitely, my, I feel more closer and fonder and more admiring of him for having essentially... Given you work. <laughs> yeah, for having, yeah, given me work. And, but, you know, and I've, I've portrayed him as a, as a, you know, a, a mediocre loser in lots <laughs> of ways, but still. Can I flip you back to being a, a nerdy 16 and a half year old? Yeah. If you were asked to write the essay about the differences and similarities between Upstart Crow and, and Blackadder, mm. where would you start? I, think I would start by saying that I think Blackadder is, is the nastier show. And I mean that in a positive way. That it's, it's, the, it's the show that's more about weakness and bitterness and, and the... And the the, the, the more lamentable sides of the human character and Edmund Blackadder absolutely sort of personifies that. He is, he is clever, but he is n not nice and not kind and doesn't care. And that's, um, and it's so, uh, you know, it's very funny seeing that unashamedly presented and seeing, and, and being encouraged to root for him. It's, it's, he's, it's just a, the funniest of all anti-heroes. You know, you really want him to triumph, even though that would not be good for the world. And you know, and it, but it, it's leavened by the fact that the people around him are, uh, are so stupid or incompetent or vain. Whereas I think in Upstart Crow is there's it's a more kindly universe. It, it doesn't sort of punch through in the sort of nasty, gleeful way that Blackadder certainly did to me as a teenager. But but at the same time, I think Ben as, as a, at a later stage of his career he wanted to have more there is more family warmth and human feeling in upstart crows and there's probably room for in blackadder that's just you know it's, it's sort of action-packed and gag-packed but it's relentlessly nasty it's a very hard-edged comedy really let me ask you one last gossipy question yeah. and you can say i'm not interested in talking about this if you don't yeah. Want to? Of course you can. Did you meet Victoria through work? Was she another of these sort of bright, <laughs> dazzling young women no. on the telly that you came across? I, no, I met Victoria at a party. It was a party after a film premiere. So it's quite glamorous. And I had never been to a party after a film premiere before. 
uh, and she had come to the party but hadn't actually been able to go to the film. So that's, that's where I met her. I was only at that because of work and, you know, so in a way it's through work, but it was also different. And did she, she dazzle you with chat? She did, yeah. No, she was, it was, yeah, she dazzled me with chat. Uh, I was, uh, yeah, I was immediately smitten. It was, it was a party I'm very glad I went to. And, you know, the, there aren't many parties you say that about because they, they can be gruelling. But that was, that was the right call. <laughs> we, all, we all are glad that you went to that party. Well, thank <laughs> Thanks ever so much, David. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you want to watch the documentary Blackadder, The Lost Pilot, it's available to catch up on Sky, Virgin and Now. If you want to join in the conversation, you can find me on X at Tony Robinson and you can follow all our podcast news on X and Instagram at CunningCastPod. And please don't forget to follow this podcast so you don't miss a single episode. Tony Robinson's CunningCast is produced by the wonderful Melissa Fitzgerald and is a Zinc Media production.